0: Luke chapter 6. Before we jump into this, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you, you care for us through your word. Lord, we pray that by your spirit we would be open and ready, eager to receive from you today. Lord, I know that you're going to encourage, and build up, and strengthen your people through your word. Help us to be ready for that. Help us also to be ready for areas that you're going to, Lord, maybe expose in our own hearts, areas that we need to deal with. Lord, we want to be faithful followers of Jesus. So continue to teach us what that looks like in our day-to-day life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it isn't a suggestion. You know, Jesus doesn't simply encourage his followers to love their enemies. It's a non negotiable for those who follow Jesus. Love that knows no bounds and has no barriers. That's the kind of love that Jesus modeled and invites us, his followers, to walk in. But how is that possible? How is it possible to love your enemy? I mean, has Jesus gone too far? Are we willing to go that far with him? So here in Luke 6, we're actually dropping into the middle of a sermon. Jesus has spent uh, really an entire night in prayer on the mountainside, and he's calling his disciples to himself. He chooses 12 as apostles or sent ones. We could say that the nation of Israel, if you remember the history of Israel, that Israel actually was born after Moses comes down from the mountain, with the commandments, and he brings the, the instructions from the Lord to the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, here Jesus is in Luke 6 on a mountainside, and he's selecting 12. What's going on here? Jesus is establishing a new community, a new Israel, a new people. And he begins his sermon in verse 20 by contrasting two types of people those who are blessed because they identify with Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom they're hoping in God's promises and they're contrasted with those who have everything they think they need now and are not hoping in the promises of God and that's where we are here in Luke chapter 2 we're going to pick up in verse 27 your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be, uh, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And we'll stop there. Three things I pray that we see here this morning. First, the command to love. Second, the question of love. And third, the reason we love. First, the command to love. So here we have these marching orders. Directions to his disciples gathered on this mountainside. Instructions from King Jesus. Don't forget, he's a king. He's proclaiming a kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Where there's a kingdom, there's a king. Jesus, the Christ, is Jesus, the king, the anointed one. He's giving these marching orders to his disciples. It's a new way of life for a new community, a new people who are ready and eager to follow him. He says, but I I tell you, I say to you who hear me, to you who are paying attention, who are listening, and to you who desire to obey me. What does he say? He doesn't encourage his disciples, just simply encourage them like, all right, if you want to love your enemies, he commands them. One author has has talked about it this way. It's the non-negotiable centerpiece of those who follow Jesus. What is? Love. And in particular, loving those who don't love you. Loving those who hurt you. The non-negotiable centerpiece of those who follow Jesus. It isn't an optional add-on. Like, oh, I'll, I'll get to that. One day. And he isn't asking if this is all right with them. Hey, is this cool with you guys? Did you, did you love your enemy? Let me get a raise of hands. You didn't do that. Love your enemies. Yeah, every time I read this, I'm just like, really? I mean, a number of times, I've, just, I've actually gone to Valerie when I land here in my own devotional time in God's word. And I said, will you read this? Check this out. I know you've seen this before, but check, check it out again. Just read it. This is what we believe. This is what we're called to. I can feel like a dazed boxer. But imagine what it would have felt like to the original hearers, a people living in enemy-occupied territory, the Romans. How can Jesus command us to love? We can't take this literally, can we? Isn't this a figure of speech? Other questions might fill our minds. I mean, unless I feel something towards someone else, I can't love them, can I? It doesn't seem very practical. I can't even love those I say I love. So how am I going to love those who insult me and slander me, who hurt me, or hurt those that I really do love? Or maybe we say, I've tried and I don't seem to be very good at it. Is there another way? There is no other way. It's direct, it's personal, it's invasive. Lots of what Jesus says is personal, direct, and invasive. But do, do you feel the impossibility of this command? How, how ridiculous and really impractical it is? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel helpless in the face of it? I hope you do. I I do, because I'd be worried if your arms were crossed right now and you're thinking, yeah, love my enemy. Got it. (laughs) Of course. I do that every day. (laughs) What's next? All right, who does Jesus mean by enemies? So yes, those who persecute you. Verse 22. But not only those who persecute you. Oh, he... He says, those who hate you, those who curse you, those who mistreat you. All right, so many live with this mindset, I love you, I love you. That is until you cross the line, until you hurt me. An enemy always takes something from us. Takes dignity, respect. And now we're being told by Jesus, we're being told to give, not to get back. We're being told to bless, to pray for, to speak peace and wholeness over. To bring the one who is hurting us to God in prayer. And so everything in us shrinks away from this. Everything in us shrinks away from this. But this, this new community life is the life we're called to this is what it means to live in the kingdom it's a radical movement it's a radical movement it's what it looks like to follow jesus we say we're followers of jesus we want to follow him are we willing to obey his command to love and love isn't a warm fuzzy feeling it's an action it's a way of life it's active care for others and it it does often come with feelings it does It'll produce feelings at times. But Jesus isn't asking us to express some kind of sappy, uh, you know, sentimentality towards those who persecute us. Aren't you glad he's not asking for that? He's certainly not asking us to approve of our enemies' actions against us or to say, hey, what you did was fine. I'm good with you. That's not what he's saying. What they do, what they did is wrong. But that wrong, though it appears to be this insurmountable barrier to love, Jesus is saying it's not. No barrier is too big. Not our struggle with the command that Jesus gives us to love our enemies. Not our fear of what it's going to require of us. Not the difficulty in understanding it. Not the pain of the offense that has come our way. There is no barrier too big to the love Jesus is calling us to. And so Jesus begins to illustrate from things that we value most. What do we value the most? Our bodies and our possessions. Don't look around like you don't value your body or your possessions. We all value our bodies and our possessions. So verse 29, he says, Turn, he talks about the other cheek. What's he talking about? Turning the other cheek. Is this an is he talking about an insult, like it feels like you've been backhanded, so just turn the other cheek, just feels that way? Or is this an actual slap on the cheek, a punch in the jaw? What's he getting at? I believe this is physical, it involves the face, and it's insulting. So whatever he's getting at, our natural reaction is to strike back. I mean, if, if someone just pops me in the jaw, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, I love you. My tooth is loose. Thank you. Mhm. No. I would be tempted to fight back and then get really beat up. But Jesus here is speaking about a lifestyle. He's saying don't seek revenge. Be ready if need be to accept yet another blow, another insult. This is a posture of humility. You know, in, in a good action movie, we're always cheering for that, that guy or that girl who's seeking revenge on his enemies. It happens like this, you know, the main character, his family either gets kidnapped or killed, and then they get like their group of friends and a bunch of guns and go after the enemy. How many movies have you seen like that? And we cheer him on. We're like, yeah, get them all. <laughs> and then we wait for the end scene with the main bad guy. The call to turn the other cheek is a call to faith, of extraordinary trust in a just God. You know, the early church did this. They modeled it for us. They preached the gospel of Jesus to those who rejected them, and they never fought back. Do you remember Paul and Silas in Acts 16? It's one of my favorite scenes uh, they've been beat up. They've been falsely accused. They've been thrown in a prison in the city of Philippi. This is before the Philippians were a thing. This is really before the church had really gotten off the ground in Philippi. And here they are locked away in the inner uh, prison of this, of this jail. They're in, they're in stocks. Their feet are locked up. And, and what are they doing at the midnight hour? It says they're singing and they're praying. And, and all the prisoners can hear what they're singing and praying. They're not like, yelling for the jailer like you know cursing him out and and they're 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 recognizing god's presence they're recognizing that they don't have any control over what could happen next that jailer could come in and, and beat him up some more but god is the one who has control and they're recognizing his grace and they're 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 looking to him in prayer and song and what happens next is this earthquake comes and rattles their chains and the doors everything comes uh, opens up and, and the jailer, knowing that the, the prisoners have definitely booked it out of there, they must have escaped when the doors opened, he, he proceeds to take out his sword and he's about to kill himself because he knew that was his end anyway if he was caught after the prisoners escaped. And Paul and Silas, they say, wait, what do you, stop! Now let's just pause for a second. If we were in a dungeon, our feet were locked up, the doors open after this earthquake. Would we have st- just stayed around, like, hey, I wonder what the jailer's gonna do? <laughs> would we have been like, look what the jailer's gonna do? They had compassion and love for their enemy in that moment. They stopped him. We're not going anywhere, we've not fled the scene don't go through with your plan here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? That was his response. That night, that man was baptized, and and Paul and Silas, their wounds were washed. They were cleansed. He was part of what would be the Church of Philippi, this jailer who encountered the gospel in the middle of the night, when he was about to do himself in. And it was because they had love for their enemy. I, I want to direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a verse I've leaned on so many times. When I've met with people and we are struggling with all kinds of things in life, this is a passage that I've, I've taken many people to when they have faced injustice. Things that have been done to them that aren't right. We look, uh, starting in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's think about what's being said here. Jesus, the Son of God, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. What does that mean? In the moment where injustice is happening and you want to retaliate, in that moment you have a choice. I am going to entrust this situation to the one who judges justly, to the just judge of all, which means... We believe that there is nothing happening to us that is outside of God's, uh, he's aware of it and he will punish it at some point. Either that person who is doing injustice to us will be punished or he will repent or she will repent. But we oftentimes want to take up what isn't our rightful place and lash out. But Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That requires trust and a belief that God is just. That he won't just brush everything under the carpet and be like, I didn't see that. He sees it. It matters to him. Injustice matters to him. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, so are we going to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly? I find a lot of grace in that. When things are said to me and done to me and I'm tempted to lash out and I, by God's grace, remember that there is one who judges justly, who sees all. I'm going to entrust this to Him. You know, there's always risk associated with that kind of love and sacrifice. But we have to remember that God is a seeing God. He hears, he cares, and he will judge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So I have to ask myself in those moments, am I taking on a role that isn't mine? Am I demanding perceived rights? Am I willing, or am I willing to be rejected? Am Am I willing to overcome evil with good? We're talking about kingdom living here, following Jesus he told us to turn the other cheek and in verse 29 and 30 he says now your cloak, your outer covering and your tunic, which is your inner uh, clothing or your shirt, what's he say about that? Uh, Go with me back to Luke 6 verse 29 to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also and from the one who takes away your cloak, your outer clothing, do not withhold your tunic either give to anyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back okay, what's going on here? This removal of the cloak, this removal of the tunic, this is material possessions. Our natural reaction when you take my jacket is give it back. I need that jacket. I get cold too. But the heart, the spirit of what's being said here is what we need to capture. There's a readiness and a posture to give and to give and to give, to not hold on, but to love. So are you willing to be vulnerable and practice radical self-sacrifice? Now, there's a time that we shouldn't give up our possessions. There's a time that we shouldn't, in in love, give to the one who asks. There is. We need discernment. We need discernment when someone comes to us and asks for money. We need discernment in that moment. We we need to be careful. But the big question, I think, that we need to ask ourselves when people come to us or when they, they want something, Am I going to show respect to the person in front of me? Will I treat them with dignity? Will I talk to them as a person made in God's image? I am speaking to a person, not an object. Because sin reduces people around us to roles and objects that we can use or look down upon condescendingly. Verse 1 is a summary for us, or verse 31 rather. Verse 31 is this sweet summary for us. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Well, we know this as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Everything we do in life should be filtered through this. Everything. You know, it's often quoted alone, right? We don't see what's surrounding it. I usually throw it at the kids, you know, when they're messing with each other. They're treating each other poorly brothers beating each other up. Hey, do you really what do to each okay? How many times am I going to But it's it's easy to say that when we're being treated with kindness, right? And Jesus knows that, and so he begins to ask a series of questions that helps us wrestle with applying this verse to our lives. So first we saw the command to love. It's a command. Second, and these will be shorter But this is the question of love. I want us to see the question of love. If you love those who love you, verse 32, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? So what's happening here? He's asking some questions that are poking at the kind of love he's wanting to draw out of us. Now, when you think you've taken love far enough, Jesus is saying, you've you've only just begun. Go further still with your love. So three questions that he begins to, to lay out are really illustrations for us, and there's three responses, and it's the same point. And the point is this. Doing good in order to receive good in return is not enough. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Oh, even sinners do that. If that's how you love, then you have set boundaries on love. And Jesus' love knows no bounds. So stop being selective with love. That's what he's getting at. It's not enough to love those who love you back. The questions challenge us, right, to the core of our being. They challenge us not to settle for a love that just looks like the world's love. What good is that? What difference is that going to make? If you say you've been loved by God, if you've received his love, this this love that knows no bounds, this love that has forgiven you of your sin and shame, what difference is that making in your life? Does it stand out? Is it vibrant? Is Is it extravagant? Is it transformative in your life? Is it a love that in the face of betrayal and pain and misunderstanding stands firm? Everyone knows the power of love. I just want you to know, I know that Valentine's Day is this weekend, coming up, next week. And I did not plan a sermon on love. No, it just happened. But how many of us, in love, have done these cr- absurd things, crazy things, right? Some, some of you guys, you know, when you fall in love with a girl, you, know, you do crazy things. You declare your love publicly. You'll dress up in, 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 in ways that you would never have dressed before. It's either out of love or fear of how she... Anyway. <laughs> Uh, But I'm going to call it love. We do these crazy things rooted in love. We love the idea of love. But let me ask you this. Imagine a world. Can you imagine a world where we're living our lives under God's loving rule, where we recognize that we've received a radical, generous love, and we're going to give radical and, and generous love in return? Imagine a world like that. That's the world we're called to actually live in, here. Third, the reason we love. We're ending where we need to begin. Verse 35. But love your enemies and do good. Land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful." And to the evil. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. It's the starting place. If we're going to love the way Jesus commands us to love, if we're determined to make this way of life our own, to walk in love, what's going to motivate us? What's the reason? Well, because we've been loved. We want to be like the one who has loved us we want to imitate him that's the motive god the father has been kind to the ungrateful and to the evil to the wicked and don't think that that's some other group over there it's us he's been merciful and so we're to be merciful he has forgiven and we're to forgive he has loved and we're to love Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, a city that would reject him and eventually crucify him. He prayed for his enemies while hanging on the cross. In Romans 5, verse 10, it says, while we were were enemies, right, he reconciled us to God by, by the death of his son. This is what God has done for us. This is what love looks like. And so we learn how to love by the love we've been shown We learn how to love others by the love we've been shown. So how much are we drawn near to the love that we've been shown? How much are we thinking about God's love, His His clear love, His extravagant, absurd love directed at us? In 1 John, it says this in verse 10 of chapter 4. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be this propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John's saying, it just makes sense. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another with an extravagant love. That's what he's calling us to a love that is lived in response to a generous love that's been given. He's calling us to be who we are, sons and daughters. Have we forgotten the love that we've been shown? Have we moved away from it? Have, are we placing boundaries and limits on our love and we're saying this far and no more. Don't you dare cross that boundary. Why do we sing songs? Why do we celebrate communion? Why do we do all these things? We do it for a number of reasons, but we need, we need to remember and celebrate the grace and the love of God expressed in Jesus because we are tempted to judge we are tempted to write others off we're tempted to walk in unforgiveness in animosity and in bitterness and i've been praying for you this week because i'm tempted in these ways and i know you're tempted in these ways so what relationship in your life right now are you you're walking in these perceived rights to hold on to an offense against a brother or sister in christ where are you holding on yeah they've hurt you it's true it's painful. We're not, we're not dismissing that at all, but do you have animosity and bitterness in your heart? If you do, I think it's, it's God's love for you today and it's his grace extended to you today to deal with that, to repent of that and to say, God, help me to learn how to love in, this way, in the way you're calling me to in, in this context. I don't even know how to do it. Just be honest with him. Just be honest with him. Then he ends with this illustration from the marketplace. In order to get the maximum amount of grain, it would be pressed down and shaken together in a, in a bag or in a, a container. So you get this maximum amount of grain, you get it in there and you shake it some more. Give me some more. Push it down. Get in there. Shake it up. And that's the illustration we end with. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is not about money. For those of you who have been in the church and maybe heard someone talk about money using this passage, that's an ugly distortion. This is about love. An absurd, ridiculous amount of love. A shocking amount of love. A hard to grasp amount of love that comes back to us, spills over. God loved us even when we were his enemies. He'll be with us when we step out to love ours. God has loved us even when we were his enemies. He will be with us when we step out to love ours. I am not saying this is easy. I know that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's what He produces, the Spirit produces in us. And I know if Jesus calls us to love, He'll give us the grace to do it and the wisdom to do it, the know-how in each circumstance and situation. I want to have a posture of humility towards those who hurt me. I want to be ready to receive an insult, but then entrust it to the Lord. I don't want to think that holding something against someone or over them is right. That's the culture Jesus is calling us to live in. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be a community of Jesus' followers that are determined, really, to live a lifestyle of this absurd generosity and ridiculous love. A love that knows no bounds or barriers. Would you help us? Would you just, first of all, remind us of the ridiculous love that you've shown us in Christ? That we'd be so humbled and amazed at that love that it would, it would really impact us on a personal level, that we'd be moved by it and that we'd respond to it by showing love to others, showing forgiveness and grace to others. And that people would scratch their heads and wonder, how are you not retaliating? How are you not angry? How are you not holding back? Lord, help us to be a people who learn what it means to love our enemy and to walk it out. In Jesus' name, amen.